Episode of Seed Pod. I'm your host, Christian Cowley. We're pleased to acknowledge that we're broadcasting to you from the traditional lands and unceded territory of the Keatsie First Nation and the Kwantlen First Nation, who have been the stewards of this land from time immemorial. We're also recording from inside the Seed Center neighborhood house in Maple Ridge, which began its existence as a one room schoolhouse. It was built as a kindergarten in the 1920s by the Japanese pioneers in Haney to teach English to the little kids that spoke Japanese at home before they entered the mainstream schools. At the time, about one-third of the Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows population was of Japanese-Canadian ethnicity. It seems that most of the families were involved in farming, mostly strawberries and other market garden goods, or fishing. Some opened up shops or were boat builders. It was Japanese fishermen who introduced salmon trolling to the West Coast. They made some of the best boats and were known to be great fishermen. In 1942, during the Second World War, a BC Member of Parliament successfully persuaded the King government in Ottawa to issue orders to have all of the people of Japanese descent removed from the coast and interned for the duration of the war. They were given 48 hours to report to the Hastings Fairgrounds with one suitcase. Their properties and possessions were confiscated and sold by the government, including their farms and fish boats. Not one of them was ever charged with an act of disloyalty. In addition to being uprooted from their homes, many were separated from their families and sent away to camps. My mother recalls one young fellow who went by the name of Jimmy, who was sent to the little hamlet of Longworth, located well east of Prince George. He used to pick up the laundry washed by my grandmother for the Japanese-Canadian men who were employed at the work camp nearby. The internees had to pay for their own internment. So the Seed Center building itself was part of that dark legacy. It passed into private hands for many years until it was donated to our society and moved to its current site by the community to preserve it as a heritage building. In 1988, the Canadian government in the Mulroney era finally apologized for the internment. And just last year, the BC government, recognizing the need to work on racism, appointed the Honourable Rakna Singh as Parliamentary Secretary for Anti-Racism Initiatives. Her mandate letter from the Premier included the specific task of, quote, honouring the Japanese-Canadian community by providing lasting recognition of the traumatic internment of more than 22,000 Japanese-Canadians during World War II in libraries, communities, and at the B.C. Legislature, unquote. Today, there's little sign that the Japanese-Canadian community in Maple Ridge was once lively and thriving. In fact, very few of the original families have returned since their, their citizenship was finally restored in 1949, four years after the war ended. They had little to return to since their lands and property were sold off by the government. So today, it's my pleasure to have a conversation with Trevor Takasaki, a Maple Ridge resident, who is descended on his father's side from one of those early Japanese-Canadian settlers. His Dutch mother spent the war years in the Netherlands and endured many hardships there before coming to Canada. So today we're going to concentrate on his father's side. It's my hope that we will gain a bit more insight into the Japanese-Canadian legacy in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows. And in that process, I hope we can start to better understand how we can work on reducing and eliminating the systemic racism that is the legacy 
colonialism. Trevor Takasaki was born in Vancouver in 1973 to a second-generation Japanese-Canadian father and a mother from the Netherlands. His father passed away when Trevor was 13, the night before Trevor was about to start high school. Needless to say, this loss led to lots of trouble for Trevor in high school. In his early 20s, Trevor moved to Europe for a year to start afresh and taught in Sweden and Poland as a volunteer. This was around 1994. When he came back to Canada, he became a volunteer in the Burnaby Youth Open Custody Program at the Maples from about 1995 to about 2001. Then he volunteered for the Boys and Girls Club and the Burnaby Parks and Rec Department to help with at-risk youth programs for another three years. He was working at the time as a professional woodworker, crafting custom joinery, till about 2004. In 2004, he began teaching in School District 42 in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows, and bought a house in Maple Ridge. He taught at Westview Secondary for the first few months, and then moved to Thomas Haney Secondary for the next 16 years, up to 2020, when he was elected president of the Maple Ridge Teachers Association in May. He is the current president of the Maple Ridge Teachers Association. Trevor's father was born in the Haney neighborhood of Maple Ridge, where he lived until his family was interned during the war. His father was shipped to New Denver with his family. Their house in New Denver has now become the center of the internment museum there. The family stayed in New Denver until 1951, two years after restrictions were lifted. They moved back to the Lower Mainland and Trevor's father became a mechanic. But he moved to the Northwest Territories to escape the persistent racist attitudes towards Japanese Canadians in the Lower Mainland at the time. Eventually, he moved back to Vancouver, met Trevor's mother, and got married. They took up residence in Burnaby until his untimely death in 1986. Trevor's mother was born in Delft in the Netherlands. During the war, her family was part of the Dutch resistance, hiding Jewish families. After World War II, her family moved to northern Ontario, where they were told the land was good for farming, which it was not. So they moved to the Holland Marsh near uh, the Holland Marsh area near Toronto. And in her early 20s, she moved to Vancouver and met Trevor's father. Trevor, how long have you lived in Maple Ridge, and where did you spend most of your formative years before moving here? So I moved to Maple Ridge about 18 years ago when I first became a teacher here. I bought a house um, because I was going to make this my permanent place. And before that, I, uh, I grew up in Burnaby, born in raised in Burnaby and uh you know a couple of little breaks along the way when I was in high school I moved to Toronto just to I got in a lot of trouble so I I I thought oh I'll move out when I was in grade 10 so I moved out for a couple months to Toronto uh, and then after high school I moved to Europe for uh, just over a year so but most of the time was Burnaby and Maple Ridge. So I understand that your paternal grandfather immigrated to Maple Ridge from Japan and that your father lived here too. What do you know about your early family history on your dad's side? So my uh, dad's family, uh, my dad, as, as you said, my grandfather was uh, born in Japan, came here. My grandmother uh, of Japanese descent was born here in Maple Ridge. Um, and then they had uh, the siblings, eight brothers and sisters, who all um, grew up here as well. Um, one was born in the internment camp, but for the rest, they were all born in, until the war, you know, lived here. And uh, they had quite a bit of farmland here. Um, so yeah, my my uh, 
my father's family uh to be honest it was uh it was hard to get a lot of information about what childhood was like for my father and that was uh, a recurring theme i i see in in more families japanese descent who'd gone through the internment so my my dad and and all of his family had a, an uncanny knack of being able to answer questions without giving you any details so um you know uh we could have a long conversation but um the intention of it was of course to not tarnish the rip the um the feelings of the children with what had happened it was a shameful event and they didn't want the kids to have that sense of shame and that sense of uh betrayal so i think for a lot of them they considered themselves like uh, i guess the way i could say it is it's like a a throwaway generation where they'll carry that that burden to the grave and hopefully not pass that on that resentment and bitterness to the future generation so um never had uh, uh conversations of bitterness or resentment towards canada despite his personal feelings but i know that that had a great impact on his well-being and health to not be able to uh share what what kind of things were going around in his memory of of his experiences and I know that um that guilt stayed that you know embarrassment and shame stayed with him for a, th- throughout his life. Do you know how old he was when he was uh, when the internment took place? Uh yeah, like four or five years old I think is pretty early. So yeah, and then he was born outside but yeah, spent the early parts of his life there. And uh, I actually didn't even know but they stayed up in the interior till 51. They stayed quite a bit later because of the lingering resentment and bitterness racism towards Japanese after the war. So even when they were able to come back in 1951, he could only find work after he had uh they they'd been able to get a farm uh when they returned but uh because of all that had been taken away from them they couldn't release all the kids out into the world they had to work to get back on their feet so it was a couple of years before he could even go to learn to be a mechanic but he had to leave the lower mainland even still because of the lingering racism so he had to live up in northwest territories for a few years till those feelings settled down a bit more but yeah finding out information about uh his childhood was uh with dribs and drabs you know so i take it that your your grandfather's occupation then was farmer yeah so my uh my grandfather uh and grandmother they they both of course equally um that's sort of a cultural thing that the the farms were actually in my grandmother's name and uh and they of course were both uh, raspberry and strawberry farmers they had uh yeah 36 acres and um they had uh 250 fruit trees acres and acres of raspberries and strawberries and uh you know my grandfather was even part of the nokai society um taking his turn at times on the board so um uh, but yeah that was that was what they did they farmed for raspberries and strawberries So looking at the excellent documents that are available on the Maple Ridge Museum and Archives website, it seems that the Japanese settlers were already subject to a lot of racist attitudes and discrimination in the 1920s and 30s, even before the war, at a time when Japan was considered an ally of the British from World War 
Have any of your relations ever talked about discrimination that affected the family? So, as I had mentioned, the, uh, the, the feeling I think that my family had was that they weren't going to pass on the resentment. And so they didn't talk a lot about the harm that was caused to them personally, more in broad paint strokes to the Japanese Canadian community. But I was able to see instances in which my father could have those lingering feelings of being sensitive to victimization of racism. So, for example, a story I've told is, is where early on in my uh, life, my dad was a fighter. My dad was tough. He was somebody who always stood up for what was right. He was a very confident person and in all respects was always widely respected. He worked hard. He did uh, amazing things for many people and, and everywhere he went, people would say good things about him and he always carried himself with confidence. But I do remember early on when I was a child going to a park and, uh, and one instance where I realized how much it had affected him that even as a grown man, we were playing on the merry-go-round. It was back when they still had those. And, and a couple of white teenagers came along and started throwing out racial slurs and, hey, Jap, go home, you know, get out of here, this is our park. And I was fully expecting my dad to, you know, stand up for us and himself because of just his character and what I've always seen of him. Um, but because it was uh, that racism, it was very interesting to see him pack up and leave. And I saw something that I hadn't seen, which is a holdover to his childhood. Mm. And so that was a difficult thing to see because that just was not who he was as a grown-up. But I think that uh, much of what's untold is the health effects of carrying that shame and guilt. And so, like, he died young. Many of my aunts and uncles also had, you know, an impact on that. I think that the stress and anxiety of carrying that shame and guilt uh, and not the ability to, to speak about it had many health effects that people haven't really teased out. Yeah, now that you mention it, uh, on uh, in my wife's family, there are uh, a lot of premature deaths from various illnesses, and and I wonder how much um, that combating that racism had to to do with that. It's important, I think, to put that in into today's framework as well, and look at other people that experience racism. So um, I can I can say that the there's a lot of discussion about you know unconscious bias or different ways in which racism white privilege and all these other types of things and I think that you know as I get older I realize more that I've talked to people the uh, the stress of just living in that shadow uh, means even myself I, I I live in a perpetual state of a heightened anxiety that. Um, I would say people without that history don't have. So, for example, I am always ready for a, well, at this age, a, a verbal fight. And I'm always with my guard up about what kind of stupid racist comments someone would say. And that means that that even in myself has uh, health effects that 
I can only imagine would be much more amplified if I'd lived through the war and those attitudes. And so I think that is what directly affected a lot of that early uh, death and health effects of that constant perpetual state of weariness and anxiety about what could happen again. Yeah, so uh, I've noticed something very similar in many of the of the Nisei or second generation Japanese that were born here in Canada of immigrant parents. There's that very similar feel if they've gone through the war experience. Very different to the new immigrants who come and then have the children are born here. Yeah, so you've uh, obviously observed that very closely. So you work in the school system. What do you think of the curriculum in terms of uh, chronicling the, the Japanese-Canadian internment and the redress movement? So I, I, I like the fact that um, there was a component in the curriculum that's you know, expected to talk about the internment. But I have noticed that um, with the emphasis around what was the provincial exam and what was important would be on the provincial exam, if there was something that would be dropped, it would be something like this quite often or, or, or very minimally uh, touched upon. In comparison to what was often seen as the much more important things is what creates Canadian identity. Well, I mean... Uh, if you look at the way that, that it's set up, the Canadian identity is often defined in, in uh, the way that the curriculum used to be, uh, defined as when we became warriors fighting wars on our own, independent of British and American influence. So um, to me, that was problematic that the curriculum set up uh, so much emphasis on who we could kill and how we killed them um, versus some of these more important aspects of who we really are. And I think that the curriculum doesn't address who we really are is still a fairly racist society. And I think that um, just because people don't see it, it may be a very privileged thing that you don't see that we're still a fairly racist society. And uh, I think that more emphasis should be put on that still to this day there is a component of who we are as Canadians as a society that has benefited from and continues to benefit from our racist attitudes. And I think, I mean, to me, it is a lingering uh, and an enduring blight in the sense that I realize that for what impact physically it had in the day-to-day life of Japanese Canadians, I don't really worry that that is going to be that my property is going to be stolen uh, too much, right? It's always in the back of my head. It happened. It could happen again. But it's not, like, active. Whereas I think we need to look at it. I look at it now through the lens of how do we treat our Indigenous First Nations peoples. And I realize that's what's actually made me much more concerned, that the curriculum hasn't addressed the ongoing racism when I saw the Conservative Member of Parliament choose to stay seated at the uh, Truth and Reconciliation process as a way of saying, I'm going to get more political wins by showing that I'm against Indigenous and First Nations people in Canada. I would get more political clout by saying I'm against them than for them. That showed me that uh, we're still a, a fairly racist society and that uh, that that actually weighed more heavily in sort of the day-to-day than the the history teaches us a lens of what we can look at our day-to-day. 
but our day-to-day teaches us we're still pretty racist. Yeah, I've sometimes described Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows as ethnically challenged. And by that, I mean that there's very few ethnic groupings of any size that have had an active and distinct presence in the community that are uh, that we're aware of. That's gradually changing as new ethnic groups are coming in. But um, what are your hopes for ethnic diversity in this area and for more less racist ways of working with people, particularly our, our First Nations, I would say? So it's important to point out that when my family, my Japanese side of the family, uh, were removed from this place, that I don't know if many people living in Maple Ridge remember that one-third of all of the people in Maple Ridge were Japanese at descent, and that at any other schools, one-half of the population was all Japanese descent. And so it's hard for people to remember just how much of an impact uh, that had on our population. And when I moved here 18 years ago, I do remember how distinctly white this Maple Ridge was. And it was uh, an unsettling feeling to move from Burnaby, where there's a high percentage of Asian descent people, to Maple Ridge. Uh, Happily, I haven't had many. uh, I have had interactions that were racist uh, and uh, but but they weren't as as much as I had worried when I looked at the demographic of Maple Ridge. But of course, there are many ways in which more passive racism is allowed here because of the fact that it is uh, you can people can say things that are ignorant, and there's not as many opportunities for people to point out. I'm not saying that what you're saying is malicious. I'm not saying that you're deliberately racist, but it's blatantly ignorant. And in the absence of people to point that out, those those attitudes persist. And so that's where I hope this community does see that we lack something positive by the lack of our racial diversity. We, for example, when the in the education system, we need cultural diversity, race racial diversity in our schools, both in teachers and in and in the students themselves, because we're not preparing uh, the students in an all-white class to go out into the world where they're going to have a much different experience when they go to the university. And so it is a benefit to have that diversity. It's not... Sometimes we see it as a hindrance, a burden. Well, because it does can cause some conflict culturally. But what needs to be addressed is it's a deficit not to have that diversity, to learn how to work with others in different cultural experiences. So ethnically speaking, my children are also uh, half Japanese. And uh, they've, you know, as young people now in their early 20s, they've really all along embraced that identity. Has your perception of yourself changed over the years as, as kind of the environment has, has changed and awareness has changed? So, like I said, when I was a child, I... Uh, my my family deliberately shielded me from a lot of the the past. But as I got older, I, of course, realized it is out there. And, and, and yeah, in, in the years recent, last 10 years or so, I've realized how much of an impact it has, more so than I did much earlier on in my life. But I think it, it's it's very strange that it's 
actually what has weighed on me the most is the way that these enduring attitudes of systemic racism towards indigenous people weigh heavily on me. Like I, 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 I would probably be easier to let go of the harms of the past if it wasn't so blatantly obvious still today that it's so persistent. So, for example, after I came back from uh, my time in Europe, I volunteered in youth custody in Burnaby for six years. And that was a place where I had a front row seat to just how racist our society is towards Indigenous people. And so we, you'd hear stories of a, a, a white mother coming up to the judge and saying, don't worry, I'll take care of him. Okay, we'll release him into your custody. First Nations... Mom says exactly the same thing. Nope, he's six months. It's it was blatantly obvious that that was persistent, and and so I've always celebrated Canada Day, and because despite what happened to my family, I was hopeful that it had been a learning process that it wasn't going to happen again. But it's been recent years, about the last six years, that I won't celebrate Canada Day so long as we continue to treat the Indigenous Canadians the way that we do. Drinking water, rights, the way that it's still called the Indian Act. So all of these things overlap. And so my experience and feelings of resentment towards the racist way my family was treated can't heal in the sense that we are still doing it to just a different people group who continued and have had it way worse. I mean, it has just been so enduring and so long-standing and so widespread that I can't really move on with my own personal past and the way Canada treated us as long as what's happening to the Indigenous Canadians is still so blatantly obvious and so racist. Yeah, so what do you see happening for, for Maple Ridge in, in particular uh, along these lines? And what would you like to see in the way of uh, change of progress or... Uh... I would preservation um, yeah. in this in so, this area yeah so um just the fact that there is there was so many sites so much land that was owned by japanese canadians so much of this was cleared by japanese canadians and that is a history that we benefit from and so many of the things have there's such a lack of of uh, dedicated space and history written down in those sites, buildings, etc., that I would, I would hope that um, the Maple Ridge takes a more proactive approach in recording in the sites themselves, in the buildings themselves, of where the Japanese community impacted and, and had a place. I, I, for example, where I bought my house, I didn't know, was smack dab in the middle of a massive Japanese farming community till a year after I had uh, bought my house and there's there was zero indication at that point that there had ever been a Japanese presence in that community and I would love to see I, I saw the Nikkei park that that was put up and I was at the opening of that and that was a very important thing that that was part of it but I would like to see more dedicated space and more recognition at the sites where they were even if it is just plaques and some sort of visible recognition that people passing by could say there were Japanese people who had an impact on this space and uh, it was taken away nothing we can do about that now but we can at least record the history and not pretend it didn't happen yeah for sure um, as as you know you're sitting in a building that was 
built by the uh, the NOCAI, which was the Agricultural Association, but was really the, the community center for the Japanese community in Haney. It was called the Haney NOCAI. And so that, that history is embodied in this building itself. And we hope, actually, that uh, through the some of the redress process that we will get some of that uh, signage researched and created to tell more of the story you know, fairly accurately of the scale and scope of that, um, of that existence. I, I would hope, I, I would love to, if there was more recognition in recording how hard the Japanese community at that time worked to try and integrate. They weren't an isolationist community that wanted to endure in their Japanese-ness and at the expense of the white people living here in Maple Ridge. So in this site, they had uh, education on how to become how how Japanese women should behave in White Maple Ridge. They hired white teachers to teach women from the community to to teach the Japanese women. This is what you do. This is how. And so many many things were chosen based upon how can we become productive, integrated members of the society. I know for people who don't know the past. They may say, well, the internment was a natural byproduct of the isolationist community that didn't integrate well. And that's just not true. There were so many attempts to try and become part of the community, learning the ways, learning what wouldn't be offensive, learning how to do integration well, choosing where to buy the textbooks so that it would be more of a North American perspective. And all of these things, I would love it if they were to be embedded in, for example, even the history of this building, where those some of those lessons held. And that may at least remind people, or, or at least upend people's belief that they were this strange group of people that couldn't have integrated. They did everything they could, and it didn't matter. They, it was all racism. It was skin color and culture, and the culture didn't matter. It just wasn't going to be accepted. It's telling that this building was a kindergarten and not a school because they did go into the regular mainstream school system. They just needed, uh, you know, brushing up on English that they wouldn't have necessarily had in their, in their, in their homes. So, yeah, the, those attempts were, were very sincere and, and ongoing, and uh, it unfortunately was not rewarded at the time. I, I hope we're far enough looking in future that we can get past some of these behaviors. There is a lot of systemic racism built into my character, um, not by choice, just by, by environment and, and nurture. And I'm, I hope that uh, my children will have less of what I have and eventually be not racist at all. But uh, it, it takes work to get there. Yeah. And I, I certainly have hopes for, for Maple Ridge to, to get there. I, I think it's far from there now. Just a lot of the judgmental attitudes toward a variety of things, not not just race. So understanding and tolerance are what underlie a tolerant society. It is a a hard process to to be able to learn how to work with others. That is a a positive byproduct of, of racial diversity and that I would love to see that tolerance, acceptance to diversity spill over into all different aspects, not just race, because it would benefit us all.
Well, this has been great today. I hope to have you back at some point to uh, talk about some of your other activities in, in the community. But this has been great to have a little bit of a glimpse into someone who has deep roots in, in Maple Ridge that go back, uh, I guess, a hundred years. Yeah, yeah, about a hundred years, yeah. Well, thank you very much for, uh, for being with on Seedpaw today. Trevor and I had the conversation you just heard in mid-August. It's now the end of October. In the intervening months, I've reflected several times on his remarks. One comment in particular really resonated with me. He said that we teach kids that the coming of age of our national identity was predicated on our status as independent warriors, or who we could kill and how we killed them, rather than on the more important aspects of who we really are. It's a colonial framework that I and many others were brought up with, and it colors how we view the world, unless we are given other lens with which to see that world. Trevor also expressed how systemic racism toward Indigenous peoples weighed more heavily on his mind than the historic injustices his family experienced, and that this ongoing injustice was holding back the intergenerational healing within him that should be taking place. His reaction to another group's trauma is profoundly troubling to ponder, because it implies that the impacts of racialized trauma are not just limited to the people experiencing the racism at the time, but can also extend to others as well, which means that the disruption is more widespread. But Trevor's reaction also gives me reassurance that in time, we can learn to behave more positively as a society, because we have individuals and groups that can empathize with repressed peoples and fight for change. As a society, we are about to embark on a great reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. I, for one, look forward to the day that all people in this land understand what reconciliation means and see the way forward to peaceful unity. We are not there yet. The task before us is to seek that understanding in good faith and to resist all attempts to roll us backward into xenophobic postures. It's my hope that, with your help, SeedPod will play a useful role in shedding light on the path forward. And now it's time to shift gears in this episode. Since music is the universal language of mankind, it seems fitting to learn a bit about a young singer-songwriter from Maple Ridge that I met in September. Her name is Anna Hendry, and she performs as Anna Isabella. Today I'd like to welcome Anna Hendry. Hello. <laughs> welcome to Seed Pod. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. So uh, I discovered you at the Haney Farmer's Market. Do you uh, play there very often? No, that was actually my first time playing there. They called me up like really late notice and I just decided to do it. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoyed your, your music over the, uh, over the day. So how long have you been uh, playing music? Um, I've been playing for about six years. I was taking lessons at Berg Thorson Academy in Maple Ridge for about four or five of them. Yeah, and then I continued like private lessons with my teacher outside of the studio. Oh, great. And are you from Maple Ridge? Yeah, I've lived in Maple Ridge my whole life. <laughs> what kind of music do you like to listen to and what kind of music do you like to play? I listen to like indie alternative music but I grew up more on like classic rock like because my dad likes classic rock so it's like what I tend to play more but I like listening to, like everything right yeah and of that do you find that you play more one more than more of one than the other or um do you just like play a whole mix I like to play yeah like classic rock mostly I feel like it suits my voice more 
I play more like alternative stuff too. I just don't like country. That's my only thing I won't play ever. <laughs> well, uh, we're on the same page there. Okay. I'm not fond of it either. Yeah. But I do like classic rocks. So, yeah. Uh, I, I've got a feeling I'm going to like what you're going to play. Do you have any particular influences, do you figure, on what you choose or what you play? I like good performers. So, like, I feel like growing up, like, my dad loves Aerosmith. Mm. And, like, Steven Tyler, like, is, like, a crazy performer. I feel like that, like, influenced me to want to perform more. Yeah. <laughs> and so, how many gigs have you done? Is, was the Farmer's Market your first one, or have you played in public elsewhere? I've played in public, like, the Kingfisher in Maple Ridge and, like, uh, the bandstand, even, like, with my school's rock band program. But, like, I haven't really performed, like, on my own without, like, guidance, I guess, from, like, a school or, like, like music school. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Well, fair enough. I, you know, you, you look fairly young to me, so uh, it's <laughs> probably par for course. I, I watch you playing guitar. Do you play any other instruments? And which ones are your favorites? I play guitar, like acoustic, electric, and then I play piano. I'm not amazing at it because I like mostly self-taught, just like because I know the notes and stuff. And I play a bit of ukulele, but like it's not too hard. And then I know a bit of the bass, but that's like easy guitar. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have you ever played in a band uh, other than a, like a school band? No, actually. I've been, like, recording with, like, a band. Their name's Abernathy Way. Oh, I yeah. like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Can't get more local than that. Yeah, they're from Maple Ridge as well. I haven't, like, played live with them. I just, like, go to record music with them. Oh, great. Yeah. That's very cool. So have you recorded any of your music so far? I record. I recorded my first song. It's called Or So I Thought. It's on Spotify and Apple Music and all that good stuff. I Yeah, I just recorded it in my bedroom, so it's not, like, amazing, but <laughs> it's my first song. So. Okay, did you have anyone help you produce it, or is it all... all it's all by me. <laughs> 100% by you, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I hope we get a chance to hear it a little bit later in the program. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be amazing. And uh, I think you can play maybe some cover songs for us as well. What ones for would sure. you like to play today? I'm thinking Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. That's definitely one of my favorite songs to play. Probably Everybody Wants to Rule the World by Tears for Fears. That's all I got so far. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> okay, without any further ado, we'll head over to uh, the performance part. Awesome. <laughs> this one's my original song. It's called Or So I Thought. Fuck off you. 
cover um, of Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. When the rain 
and I went on in that session to play two more cover songs. I will play them in future episodes for your enjoyment. She also shared that she is a recent high school graduate and taking a gap year to work and generate some funds. She's thinking about the UVic music program, perhaps with a future as a music teacher. In 10 years' time, she sees herself performing on some stage. She said it doesn't matter whether it's a small venue or a large one, she will content to just be performing. And that concludes this episode of SeedPod. SeedPod is supported by Patreon.com, the website that allows people to send a few dollars our way so that we can keep on bringing you the voices of Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows. SeedPod is published by the Seed Center Society, a registered charity dedicated to community education on environment and development. We help connect people to community and share information on sustainable living so that all living beings can thrive. You can find out more about the Seed Center Neighborhood House and Community Gardens, as well as our free programs on our website. The address is www.seedcenter.com or C-E-E-D-C-E-N-T-R-E.com. Our featured program this episode is our weekly Wednesday community discussions. You can join us in person or on Zoom. They start at 10 a.m. and finish at noon. It's a very informal setting, and the people in attendance determine the topics. Send us an email requesting the link if you wish to join us by Zoom, or just drop into the Seed Center Neighborhood House on Wednesday mornings. We serve strong coffee and local baked goods. This episode of Seed Pod was recorded and edited by your host, Christian Cowley. As we sign off, remember that a connected community has a better chance at being resilient in the face of turbulent change. So stay tuned to SeedPod to stay in touch with your community. Thank you for listening. Yeah, he's from, I think he's from like Montreal or something. He's not that big, but I think it's pretty cool. Like another Canadian artist. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. It's called Let My Baby Stay.
快乐